we opened up uh, to the public, and it was nice and slow at first. I always told them, crawl, walk, run. We're going <laughs> to... We're going to crawl along and see how it goes before I put any more money, because I financed everything. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to episode 84 of the Command of Voice. Today, I speak with one of the founders of Brooklyn Brothers Pizzeria. Please welcome Brett Elkin. Hi, I'm Brandon Erickson, and you're listening to the Command of Voice podcast where I interview folks around Camano Island and beyond. If you want to stay up to date on events, businesses, and even hear a little history of this area, subscribe to this podcast and share with your friends. Thanks for listening. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Camano Voice, where we release a new episode every Tuesday. On this episode, uh, I got to speak with Brett Alkin, who is one of the founders of Brooklyn Brothers Pizzeria, who many of you know, uh, the at least the pizza company, because it's here in the complex, uh, and many of you have had some of their amazing New York-style thin crust pizza, which after going through this interview, I have been craving pizza ever since. Um, but that's just a side note. <laughs> um, but uh, so I got to speak with him about his his experience um, prior to starting Brooklyn Brothers, uh, and then kind of where it's how it's evolved and how it's done and, and everything like that, um, as well as how is it done during COVID and everything, because um, there's a lot of things. Um, they they didn't open originally as a uh, delivery pizza company, so um, most of their business was sit down, come inside. And so they've had to adjust and do different things like that. So um, anyways, we get into all of those things and more. Um, plus, I've known Brett for a while here. Uh, I mean, Brooklyn Brothers has been here and and he's an experienced business owner and has a lot of, you know, he's been in business for a long time. He's been in lots of different types of businesses. Um, so I, I think of him as a mentor. So it was, it was great to be able to sit down, talk with him. Um, I've asked him about different business decisions in the past for myself. And um, so anyways, it was great to hear his background, his history, and uh, I know you'll enjoy it too. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Brett Alkin. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Command of Voice. Today, I'm here with the owner of Brooklyn Brothers Pizzeria. Welcome to the podcast, Brett Alkin. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. And, and I should say one of the owners, not the owner. Okay. There, there's a group of us, and I'm, I'm one of the, maybe uh, the primary one, but one of, one of four or five. Okay. Depending on the location. Sounds good. All right. So before we get started, tell us a little bit about Brett. Oh, uh, well, where do I start? I was born in Minnesota. My father uh, moved us around quite a bit, not military, um, but uh, we moved from there to New York and Ohio and Pittsburgh and uh, went to college in Ohio. And after that, uh, took my first job in Kansas City. Went from there back to Minneapolis, from there to graduate school in Chicago. And uh, so I've, I've been, and then from there to Cleveland, from Cleveland to Des Moines, Iowa, and from Des Moines, Iowa to here. Wow. So, and we've, this is the longest, in Puget Sound regions, longest I've ever lived in one place in my life. So. Okay. Loving it. Yeah, I nice. got here in 98, so. Okay. I think so, 96, 98, something like that. Okay. What was the reason for all the moving? Well, when I was growing up, my dad is a civil engineer, and he he started uh, he would do high rise in one location and get bored with that. Then went on and did stadiums at another 
uh, firm in another city. He'd figure that all out, and then he he went and did bulk material handling systems and figured that out. And so I think he just, uh, you know, I don't know if it was boredom or opportunity, but he he liked to change things up a little bit, and and then uh, so that was the main reason. Okay. Some of it was, you know, civil engineering is, you know, based on building things. And when we've had recessions, you know, it, 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 they're the first to go. So right. at those times, sort of forced some of the moves probably. But Okay. Nice. Yeah. How was that for you then growing up in all these different locations and everything? You know, it didn't bother me. It always bothered me to leave, but then I always made new friends where we went. So, um, I, I but I will say that. I really didn't want to do that to my kids. Yeah. Um, you know, my friends from grade school, I don't, I'm not in touch with any of them. Mm-hmm. Middle school, I'm in touch with a few in high school. But uh, I think I look at my kids now and they've got relationships from, from uh, preschool until today. And yeah. uh, so I, I wanted them to have that. I think it uh, it's nice to grow up in a community and really have some roots in it. So yeah, that's, uh, so yeah, I probably missed that. But. <clears throat> nice. Um, what was your favorite place that you lived while growing up? Um, probably, I suppose Minneapolis. Yeah, it's a really beautiful place with the lakes, and and I don't really mind winter too much. So um, the winters were good. People there, you know, they go out whether it's summer or cold. They're mm-hmm. out doing stuff, and it's. Uh, the northern Minnesota is beautiful, and the lakes again, and uh, the outdoor activities are great. So. Nice, very cool. All right, so then, um, where did you graduate high school? Then, in Worthington, Ohio. Okay. So just north of Columbus. Okay. Yeah. Nice. And then, uh, upon graduating, then, uh, were you gonna? Did you go straight to college, or did you just work for a while? Nope. Straight to straight to college. Straight into a job. Yeah, so it it was uh, you know the the plan. I I would that my back in my day that's what people did. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't taking time off to find yourself, though, <laughs> which I, I, yeah. I in hindsight I wish I'd done a little of that, but yeah. uh, that just wasn't what was expected. Right. So. Where do uh, so what did you do in college and where'd you go and what did you uh, study? Bowling Green State University. It's in northwestern Ohio small town school, sort of like Washington State here. Okay. Um, and uh, studied business because that was where the jobs were. <laughs> and um, was in a fraternity and had a good time and, and did pretty well and came out with a couple job offers and, and uh, took a job. Nice. So. What was your first job at a college then? I worked for Owens Corning Fiberglass. <laughs> okay. And in their... It was called the textile and industrial business. So I sold the fiberglass that goes into boats, bathtubs. Um, the I sold fiberglass to 3M for the, you know, the tape that you mm-hmm. can, you need a knife to get through because it has the fiberglass in it. I sold them yeah. that fiberglass. So okay. Stuff like that. Okay. Not the insulation side, but uh, on the industrial side. Yeah. So were you mainly in the sales department then? Yeah, at that time, yeah. Okay. Yep. Nice. When you were doing sales and stuff, was that something growing up that you had felt like, did you have a good sales mind and ability or did you have to kind of learn that on the fly? Um, I've always, I think, done a pretty good job communicating with people and building relationships. And so that probably made me 
a decent salesperson, mm-hmm. a piece in that. It was more of a relationship selling than transactional selling. Right. I didn't enjoy transactional selling where, you know, it's the pressure's on to, to make it happen. I, yeah. I don't enjoy that. But building relationships where you have that trust and making them want to do business with you because they like you and, and right. they have confidence that you're going to deliver what you're selling, mm-hmm. that that I was better at. So yeah. I, I wouldn't say that I grew up thinking that was mm-hmm. what I, I didn't know what I was going to do when I went to college. I, I Maybe I did think business, but um, I didn't really know what. So Okay. Nice. Um, so how long were you with that company? Maybe... Maybe four years, five years. I, it's hard to remind. I'd have to look at my resume. But <laughs> it was a long time ago. But um, I was there uh, starting in Kansas City. I got promoted, went to Minneapolis. And then I went to work for uh, General Electric in, okay. the, in the plastics uh, part of, the, of General Electric. And uh, there I did market development for a couple of years out of Minneapolis. Okay. So What did that look like? Well, uh, they do engineering thermoplastics, which are the thermoplastics. It's not the stuff you make bottles and cans out of. It's more the plastic that has some structural or Lexan is used for, for uh, uh, you can see through Lexan, so it's used for, I'm trying to think of what, canopies and uh, things like that. And they had certain thermoplastics that had great chemical resistance and different okay. factors. So. What I my was tasked with was going out into the marketplace and finding applications, new applications to convert like aluminum or steel or oh, okay. what have you into these thermoplastics. Yeah. So uh, it, was, it was, I enjoyed it. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. That's really cool. What were some of the things that you kind of figured out to, that you could switch over? Well, I worked with some furniture companies on getting, especially medical furniture, mm-hmm. where there was more um, it's a, plastics compared to the wood products would be easier to clean, they, uh, more durable, they, you know, they don't necessarily dent if they're designed well. Mm-hmm. Um, they can be lighter. Uh, I worked aerospace defense and uh, worked on parts for missile systems and replacing things that were die-cast aluminum with uh, um, uh, engineering thermoplastics that, so it would lighten the load. And, yeah. And I, well, I spent a lot of time, I'd forgotten about this, but uh, working on, they were, may still be developing, I don't know, that was a long time ago. Is there, uh, you look at an infantry man um, carrying ammunition mm-hmm. with the brass casings, the lead bullets, yeah. Is very heavy. Yeah. So a lot of companies were trying to make uh, the bullets or the casings of the bullets instead of out of brass, out of plastic. Really? Which, and then design the chamber that you would fire it in heavier so it could withstand the pressure and you would have less weight in the ammunition. And yeah. therefore the troop could be able to carry more. Yeah. So that's probably still ongoing. I don't okay. know, but that was one thing I worked on too. Oh, so, very cool. Yeah. Nice. Interesting stuff. Very cool. How long were you, were you with GE then? I think uh, three or four years. And um, the next stuff with uh, GE Plastics was uh, they were headquartered in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, which okay. is way western Massachusetts, and it's a small town in the middle of nowhere, and I was a single guy, and that did not sound very appealing. <laughs> <laughs> so I wasn't very excited about but, you know, that, you know, that, age and that stage of my career, you look for advancement. And so that's what, what 
sort of was supposed to happen, but what I did is I went back to graduate school. Okay. And uh, so from there I went to Chicago to go to graduate school. Nice. What were you studying in graduate school? Well, I went to business school, and um, it was uh, finance and strategy were my two areas of focus. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Cool. What was the... um, Did you have a reason for picking those two? Um, finance, because I hadn't had much exposure, you know, I'd been on the sales and marketing and, and a side of things. So I wanted to round out with some financing and the strategy was more, I really enjoyed it. And, okay. Uh, um, strategic planning was something that I wanted to get involved with. So, yeah. um, I, I picked that. Nice. Yeah. Cool. So what did you do, um, upon graduating, um, from that? First job, I went with, uh, British Petroleum in their chemical division, which uh, produced a lot of chemical intermediates for plastics, um, sort of why I guess they had an interest in me. But uh, And I worked on building new uh, chemical plants, so doing all the financial legwork of can we make, can we build it, what are the economics, justif- basically justifying the expenditure of funds mm-hmm. on uh, building a chemical plant with new technology. So it was a boring, but maleic anhydride was basically, they had developed a new process to produce maleic anhydride. Okay. And um, so they wanted to commercialize it. So we were looking at different opportunities, both licensing and greenfield builds of uh, building out this technology. Okay. And and what are those two things? Maleic anhydride. Maleic anhydride is an acid. Oh boy, you're going to get me now. (laughs) That is another, it basically is used to make other... um, chemicals that end up in plastics a okay. lot. Malik anhydride. Oh, jeez. You're going to really test me now. <laughs> I, I used to know all this stuff because I had to study it all, but um, butad... Well, it also could be used to make butadiene, which went into, like, spandex, so... Okay. Um, stuff like that. It was okay. like a chemical intermediate. That, Got it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. I was just like, I, I wasn't, no I wasn't idea a chemist, is. but <laughs> I was the business side. And uh, <laughs> so I learned all about fluid bed reactors and catalysts and, and all the processing stuff. But yep. uh, I, it wasn't my required to be my long suit. So. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Where'd you go after there? Uh, so British Petroleum. And then I took a, uh, took a flyer with um, a small plastics distribution firm that was based in Des Moines, Iowa. Okay. And uh, at that time, I had gotten married, and and we had one child. And so I moved to Des Moines and worked for that company for another two, three years. And, um, you know, it was a small, privately held family thing, and it just didn't work out. Okay. Just one of those things. Yep. And um, so from there is when we made it out here. Okay. So we had two kids, and... um, we wanted to be by family. Yep. Obviously, family is a huge help. And uh, that intergenerational teaching that goes on, I think, is very valuable. And yeah. so we wanted to be around parents, and my parents were the logical choice. And, and uh, they were in Seattle, so off we went. Okay. So had they, when had they moved out here then? Because you were still bouncing around, it sounds like. They moved out in the 80s. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. So um, my dad bought uh, these apartment buildings in Everett, downtown Everett, in the 80s. Okay. And so that's what he was doing, and I wanted to be out here. I, I came first came to Seattle uh, when I was 13 years old to go backpacking. 
Okay. And uh, yeah. just fell in love with Seattle and had always wanted to live in Seattle. It was just sort of the thing out there. And then, so when we were in Iowa, and it's like, well, you know, the jobs that I could get very easily were in Houston, um, Chicago, yep. <laughs> or New Jersey. Because yep. those are your hotbeds for plastics and okay. chemical intermediates and stuff. And none of those appealed. Well, Chicago would have been okay, but um, really, you know, BASF and bunch of yeah i just didn't want to go to either of those locations yeah so we decided to come out here and be by family okay and uh that's what we got us out here nice what was your plan upon coming out here well i went to work for the family for the uh, the, for the uh, real estate okay and then i did got lured away into um the dot-com thing for a while so i I went and worked for three or four different dot-com companies uh back in the I guess the late 90s, right? Yeah. And um, had a lot of fun <laughs> and good experience and uh, learned a lot. Yeah. And none of them went public or anything like that. But, um, you know, I don't I don't regret it a bit. Yeah. So. Well, and I think, um, I mean, now startups and things like that are pretty not common, but like everyone knows that there's startups and that they're fast paced and they kind of know the idea of what goes into startups. Um, but like, the to actually be in one it's it's like a uh you know watch going through a business lesson but like on fast forward because like everything you have to start learning everything right then right there to keep up with what what's happening yeah um so what was that like for you like especially coming from like some big industry companies that were more slow moving and doing that i i I loved it i mean i loved putting in the long hours and i And you're right, everything you were doing, it was for the first time. So mm-hmm. you were learning as you went. And I'll never forget, I worked for one, it was called Free Edgar. And that was the first one. And, um, you know, our site slowed down to a crawl one day. And we didn't know why. And, of course, our technology guys are like, it's your ads that you're putting on there. Because I was out selling ads for, for the site. What it turned out to be is our, uh, our, on our servers... And we hosted all our own servers, which you okay. know, today just doesn't happen. Right. But our server logs were turned to, they were just accumulating all the data. They were never deleting anything. So the oh, server logs no. got full. The servers just basically wouldn't function. So <laughs> it was an ironic thing. that, <laughs> And it was like a lesson learned for everyone there. Yeah. Um, but uh, that was the pains. And oh. it was crazy and raising money did a lot of raising money for different startups and, wow and i enjoyed that dealing with the uh bcs and you know pitching and answering their questions and yeah it was it was good very cool yeah yeah no that's that's one of those worlds that like i think a lot of people hear about and they um like the idea of them but many most people aren't cut out to actually work in that type of environment I would say, you know, in the old days, it was a lot of risk because mm-hmm. you went in and that, I don't know how it is now, but back then you were, you worked for peanuts and you got yeah. a bunch of options and that's, that's where the upside was. Yeah. And, um, so there was the risk of what you were missing out on by having a job at a regular firm, like you say. Right. Now, today, I think a lot of, especially the technology guys get paid pretty well, I think, maybe not, except for the founders, um, so it's it probably has changed a little bit. Yeah. But. Yeah, from what I've heard, um, just reading different books and stuff, it, it does sound like, because there was, there was one book, I forget the, who, what, which book it was, but they were talking about this person who has been 
um, oh, it was an interview, and he was talking about uh, stardom in Hollywood versus stardom in a startup. So, like, a startup taking that from zero to sell versus being a Hollywood actor and all of a sudden having a hit movie and um, getting famous. And he's like, which one is harder to deal with? And he said, the Hollywood for sure, because you go from having no money and just being a starving artist to all of a sudden having tons of money and all these options and all these different things. He's like, a startup, you go through and eventually you get your first round and you might get you know a million dollars. But that doesn't go to you. That goes to the business. You're still living on peanuts and you're not really. So when you finally make it to the point where you sell and make it, like he's like, you have had to put in so much sweat equity that you've earned to that point. Whereas sometimes as an actor, like you feel like it's magic and it just happens overnight. Um, and so that was a really interesting yeah. aspect. Cause like, Oh, I didn't think of those as relation. Yeah. So yeah, very cool. It was fun. Yeah. So then after you got, um, and were you still working, were you just working with those companies? Then? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then after that ran its course and the, you know, the bust and went back to work for my family, been there ever since. So, okay. And then of course, <clears throat> You know, being a landlord can be pretty boring. Mm-hmm. Um, you just, it's the same stuff every day unless you're buying and selling. And yep. our family doesn't either of those. <laughs> <laughs> we just hold. So we had the empty space. Well, we didn't have an empty space, <clears throat> but we had the building across from the arena in Everett. And I okay. was looking for something to do. So uh, that's when we started the pizzeria. Okay. So so what, what initially got you interested in pizza? Oh, I've always loved pizza. It's been one of my main food groups my whole life okay i I love pizza i like all styles you know as long as it's done well i like it yeah yeah okay so then how how was it getting started with brooklyn brooklyn well we had you know the building across the street and we had some people may remember irene's antiques across the street from where the uh, event center is now and um that space as a the city would call it underutilized because now you have this arena Mm -hmm. and you have a antique store there yeah so it's not util- being utilized very well and w- right. so um there were and when the arena went in there weren't that many good restaurants in close to the arena okay and we had a spot right across the street so i thought it was a great opportunity and pizza is sort of universal um mm-hmm. you know it goes for families it goes for everything and uh so it made to me it made a lot of sense and that's what i wanted to do so yeah and we did it. Cool. And so when you were starting that one up, how did, did you start kind of digging back into your VC route and like trying to find other people or what No, what happened, I basically, um, I said I wanted to start a pizzeria and I don't remember who said, oh, go talk to Don and Vicky. They were uh, tenants in our guitar shop uh, in the same building. Okay. And uh, Don was from New York and had always wanted to open a pizzeria. Okay. And uh, his wife, Vicky, had worked on the dough recipe. So okay, basically we came, decided we were going to start pizzeria. Nice. So, yeah. Okay, and then um, and so I'm assuming he had studied or done it with. New, no, New he Style just or? he just has, his family back in New York had a restaurant, but Don he just had really good taste buds and he'd been around pizza and pizza long enough in New York that he knew what the product should be. Okay. And how to make it its best. Yeah. So. Okay. So then how did you guys, when you guys were starting to get started and put everything together, then how did that process kind of go and um, all of that? Well, um, we decided to do it. And, you know, my brother, so my brother, Vicky and Don and I 
uh, you know, formed the company, and then we, we, we being my brother and I and our employees, built out the space mm-hmm. and um, put everything together. And then, you know, one, it was on January 1st, I forget what year, 2006 or something, we, we opened up uh, to the public, and it was... Nice and slow at first. I always told them, crawl, walk, run. We're going <laughs> to we're gonna crawl along and see how it goes before I put any more money. Because I financed everything. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, we're just going to see how it goes. And, and uh, you know, things built steadily. And it was, we never really advertised and never discounted back then. And, and uh, it just grew and kept growing. So, yeah. Very cool. So then how did that, <clears throat> um, throughout that time when you were growing and it was kind of slow, was there any point where you were like questioning, like, was this a good idea or should we keep going? I don't remember um, that because I think our sales kept growing. I, I had to continue to put funds in for our first couple of years. Mm-hmm. But after that, <clears throat> um, you know, we probably turned the corner and... and uh, we're doing all right. So, okay. Yeah. Nice. And then as you guys were growing and stuff, what were kind of the, how did you guys come to the decisions that you have now, which um, like you sell all of your pizzas by the slice? Um, mm, not, well, we sell our signature pies by the slice. The signature yeah. ones. Okay. Yeah. So you sell those ones. And mm-hmm. then um, what kind of came to the decision? Because I feel like more and more pizza companies have gone towards the route of like not selling by the slice or only selling like two or three types. You go, well, so that goes back to, our authenticity of trying to be a New York pizzeria. And okay. if you go into any port pizzeria, most 90% of the pizzerias in New York City, mm-hmm. you're going to have sales by the slice. Okay. And so that's just going to be part of who we are. I think Pagliacci, most of their places, except for the restaurants, they're similar. Okay. Um, but yeah, so by the slice was always something we wanted to do. Yeah. Okay. And then as far as coming up for your recipes and stuff, you guys didn't go a lot of the standard routes that like if you go to a, you know, American, a normal pizza place, they'll have like their very standard like cheese, pepperoni, all these. Um, how did you guys kind of come up with the recipes and, it, and make it your own? Well, the signature pies Don put together and, and uh, you know, like having ricotta on a pizza is a bit unusual, but yeah. everyone who has it loves it. Yeah. And so those signature pies, which we've only changed one out and since we opened, um, are give you, you know, some authentic flavor. Um, we, it, again, we want to be authentic New York and that's why there's no fruit offered on our menu. (laughs) (laughs) And I, you know, if you, a lot of people, and so why a lot of people just say that, that, uh, you know, Pineapple is not an authentic pizza ingredient. Uh-huh. You're not going to find it in Italy or <laughs> New York City. So that's sort of why we stick to that uh, authenticity of not having fruit on the pizza. Yeah. But I don't have anything personally against... I should be careful because there are people who can feel pretty strongly <laughs> about it. I mean, if people want Canadian bacon pineapple, all, all power to them. I think it's great. You know, taco pizzas... And, <laughs> All the crazy stuff out there. I think yep. it's got an audience, and it's and if, I'm all for people getting what they want. Yeah. But if they want something authentic, high quality ingredients, um, thin crust, or the Sicilian, you know, then we're probably going to be your best bet in this area. Yeah. 
Well, and then how, as far as like sourcing the ingredients and stuff, um, you guys have gone through links to make sure you're getting, again, uh, keeping authentic with that. How yeah. have you kind of gone through that process? Well, we started and, you know, I was at the beginning, it was a bit of, Don was uncompromising on what he was going to use in the pizzas. And, you mm -hmm. know, the San Marzano tomatoes from Italy for our sauce is probably the most expensive tomato you can get. So that, but that's what we use for our sauce. Yeah. And our pepperoni is, is the top shelf. We use this, you know, the cupping pepperoni that's been a traditional thing. And, mm -hmm. and we really stick to those things. And, and then Palio cheese, which we've used since we've opened, is, is a New York cheese, Italian cheese company. Mm -hmm. And it's all made in a dairy up in uh, upstate New York. Okay. And um, it uh, probably better than half of the pizzerias in New York City will use Palio. The other half may use Grande. Okay. Um, and a spattering of other stuff. But those are the two main cheeses. But we, we use Palio. Yeah. And have... Since day one. So. Yeah. Very cool. And then the dough process is a big process in and of itself, right? Oh, yeah. Everyone thinks, as you, you probably know, yeah. me, having a bakery, right? everyone thinks that uh, the, the bread, the dough is the easy part. And it, <laughs> it's probably our most challenging uh, thing to get right day in and day out. Mm -hmm. Not that the customer is going to see any difference, but they, you know, because we hand toss, so the handleability. Yeah. Um, making sure it's proof. We proof our dough for three days to develop flavor. Yeah. Um, it things, if you've got too much yeast or not, it, all kinds of temperature, the humidity, right. how long it was on in the mixer, um, all these things can impact how it, how it ages those yeah. three days. So it's, um, it is crazy how much time we spend working on our dough. Yeah. And now we, we opened a commissary to produce our dough mm -hmm. um, about a year ago. And uh, it's really enabled us to start dialing things in. To, and we're not there yet, but we're going to achieve a much more consistent, for internally consistent yes. product. Everything goes out. You know, if we, we throw out a lot of dough, right? You know, when it's bad, it goes out. Right. We don't serve it. We can't use it. We yeah. can't toss it. There's nothing there. Yeah. So um, all I'm saying is, is that it's tough and we get it. We're working on, on it continually. So. Yeah. Yeah. Dough is definitely one of those things that, like, everything affects it. So you're working in the Northwest where you can have everything from very hot, you know, pretty warm, humid days to yep. like cold, humid days to cold, drier days. Like yep. you have everything in between and, um, yeah, it makes yeah. a complete difference. Human error people, you know, we temp our dough before we, uh, when it's done mixing and when we also, you know, look and there's a hand feel. And if you want all the operators to do the same thing and yeah. pull it at the same time, well, you, you, that's where the human uh, factor gets into things, and that's where things can go wrong. Yeah. And um, along with all the temperature and humidity and all that. So, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, I was curious, and this is actually kind of an extra question, because uh, you said you had focused on uh, strategic planning as mm -hmm. for your master's. How have you integrated that with Brooklyn, Brooklyn Brothers? Well, I'd say maybe the... Well, I think, oh boy, you know, I'd, I'd like to say that we did a high-end planning pop, you know, uh, you know, lots of planning, but we really didn't. Um, as most startups go, you sort of see an opportunity, and it's mm -hmm. whether you got, you know, the guts to go and give it a try, and, and we did. 
I'd say that, uh, you know, there's the planning parts is when I said we're going to put in a POS system and none of my partners wanted to because all they looked at is the price tag. Yeah. Like, no, we got to do this because <laughs> if we're going to continue growing, we, we can't manage it without a POS system. Right. So things like that. Um, you know, the new locations, uh, I think maybe a very strategic thing was the commissary. Mm-hmm. Um you know, to get that dough consistency across all the stores and mm-hmm. someday hopefully some economics uh, of it. Right now it's more of a control thing, yeah. but um, it's it's been good. Uh, and I, I, by nature, I'm always looking down the road. So, yeah. um, you know, where we're, where we're, right now, everybody, including us, are very short-term focused yes. as far as we're going to make it through this pandemic and how, and how can we maximize today? Yeah. And, um, but longer term after we, after we get back to normal and we will get back to normal, Yeah. then we'll start taking another look at where we are and where we want to go. So yeah. right now that's sort of, we, we've actually done some things during the <clears throat> pandemic. Um, people know that we have an awful, online ordering system and we are we've spent the last i don't know six no longer than that oh since november we kicked off with a company to put a new system together and okay we've had to redesign our whole menu a couple times and in the redesign meaning how it's put in the database so that it appears properly and we're getting really close to being able to launch this and it'll have a rewards program in there wow not right away but we'll launch that shortly after okay so that we undertook, uh, you know, during the pandemic, um, because it it just showed our our current. We we switched to toast, and their online ordering just is not good for pizzerias, and yeah. so we needed to do something. So this was the next step. Yeah. So that's awesome. Yeah, that's it is something that um, the I've, I've talked to a lot of restaurant owners and um, local business owners and stuff, and that like the online ordering, it's like certain things um like there's so many options out there but none of them fit your business they're all like 70 to 80 percent there and so like i mean working with my bookkeeper she's like so what is this this thing right here we got money in but where does it go to right (laughs) and i'm like well i don't know because some of them take the their fee out first so you don't know if it's actually for that amount and then some bring in afterwards so it's that whole thing has been like a huge learning curve. Oh, um, and awful. We all sort of got, well, <laughs> thrown into it. I mean, yes. we've been doing it for a while. Uh, we were originally with a company called Revention. And we got Revention, oh, that must have been like year four or five of our development. We had them up until this last year when we finally said, you know, they we'd, the, it just wasn't doing what we needed it to do anymore. But it yeah. was pretty pretty pizza-centric. It was okay. pretty easy to use, and the online ordering <clears throat> worked pretty well. But the company just wasn't supporting the product very well. So yeah. we need to make a change to something that was a little more up-to-date. Right. And Toast has been great in that respect. Now with the new online ordering system, I think we'll be in pretty good shape yeah. going forward. So Cool. Yeah. Um, so how has Brooklyn Brothers fared during COVID and everything with, I mean, with the shutting down restaurants and reopening restaurants and everything? How's that all well, we, been? We never, luckily we never shut down. Okay. You know, we were closed indoor dining. Yes. Yeah. But, um, 
it's without the PPP loans, I don't know where we'd be. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've they've we've needed them, we got them, and um, and not on the on the second round, we only Everett Muckleteo received a loan. The other two didn't qualify. Okay. So, but um, it you know the 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 um, Everett and Muckleteo, but mainly Everett. Everett was is our sort of flagship, our biggest volume store. Yeah. But it's our biggest dine-in. It's all dine-in. We've never delivered out of there. Oh, and, okay. Um, it so and you go to downtown Everett right now. The streets are empty. It's just dead. So that's been our biggest. That was our cash cow that sort of went dry. Yeah. So uh, that's why we've really needed the loans. And it'll, it'll before that store really comes back, we'll need the arena functioning again. We need the courts and the downtown businesses operating. And yeah, everyone I mean, to come back to work. Exactly. Yeah. Because they're not there. Yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, the Starbucks up the street even closed. Really? Yeah, on Colby. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. It just pretty wild. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, so we're going to survive, but yeah. um, it, uh, it's been an interesting time to, to live through and to be in business, and, and uh, our, our staff has been awesome. Mm-hmm. We have had no, knock on wood, staff get infected. Yeah. You never know if it happens at work or if it, you know, what they're doing on their private time, right. but the fact that it didn't happen on their private time or at work right is is fantastic so that means we're keeping our customers safe yep. our pl- employees are safe um they've done a great job of dealing with the public especially the ones who don't want to mask and don't want to follow the rules right. which is difficult and a daily occurrence but yep. um uh you know it they've persevered and, and uh it's bad. that part has been great we've been able yeah. to keep people employed yep. safely um through this whole thing so yeah well, and yeah, I think that's been, um, it's been great to be able to pre- provide that place of work, but also, you know, it is, it's, it's a difficult time for everyone. Um, regardless if you're doing well or not, there's a underlying level of stress. I've talked about it a few times on the podcast with just, um, you know, especially last year, there was this like underlying tension. Uh, even if people weren't worried about the virus, there was this underlying tension of what was. We, we, we call it COVID fatigue. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that's a national term, but the. <clears throat> It des- it describes that everyone is it, regardless of whether you've had it or you you're, it it just affects and it has an impact on everything you want to do, mm-hmm. everything you can do, yeah. And it gets and gets to be real fatigue when you can't socialize like you want to. And right. Your your sports teams weren't playing, uh, <laughs> you know, for the first part of this, and yeah. And so and it, it just you you at the beginning. <clears throat> I think everyone was optimistic this would be a two, three-month thing and right. we'd get back on track. So I think when the expectation keeps getting moved out and out, the fatigue just gets worse and worse. Yeah. And people begin to have different reactions to, right. to the fatigue and the things getting moved out. Yeah. So um, it's it's real. It, yeah. It really is. Yeah. And that's why, like, I'm just total kudos to the team um, and just the people that are working on the front lines because they have to deal with that. You know, they have to deal with those people that are frustrated and they're not mad at the person that's serving them. They're not even mad about the mass thing. It's just something to vent their frustration towards. So they put it towards that and they throw it at, you know, my team members and stuff. And I, you know, I just, I, I hear it, you know, from the office or when I'm on the floor and stuff and you're just like, no, just, 
It's not their fault. It's not their decision. It's not even my decision. It's the decision of what the states. Right. So, like, don't take it out on them. Like, write letters if you want to, but, like. Yeah. So. I mean, you have to remember we're in the hospitality business. And yeah. And it means that we need to make people as comfortable as possible. Right. And, and be, you know, and regardless of how they act. Yeah. And just because one guy came in and or one person came in and was acted very poorly does not mean that you should greet the next person fresh and with a positive attitude. Right. And sometimes that gets to be a little fatiguing. It is. <laughs> so um, it's something that we're sensitive to, and we try and give the staff kudos whenever we can. And, yeah. And, uh, but it's tough. Yeah, for sure. All right. Um, what do you see as the future of Brooklyn, Brooklyn Brothers? Well, <clears throat> sort of what I said was right now it's, very short term. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're, we're hoping that, uh, you know, I, maybe next year we'll, in 2022, we'll start to see things uh, as far as people going out to eat in groups and frequently and, you know, um, events happening where we had events out here in the courtyard that yeah. bring people in, that those things will happen again. Yeah. Um, uh, we were looking forward to that. Yeah. So when, you know, like I said before, we're not really making any plans other than to make it into those, that day comes. Yep. And, um, and then we're really looking forward to welcoming everybody back and <laughs> every way we can, but we are open. So, yep. you know, uh, delivery, we didn't deliver over the weekend, but, uh, you know, <laughs> <Light snowstorm. laughs> yeah. delivery is, is back up and, uh, we'll have the new app out soon. So nice. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I like to end every podcast with some rapid-fire questions. Oh, boy. <laughs> the first one is, uh, what purchase of $100 or less have you enjoyed the most over the last three months? Oh, you know, I should have written some of these things down. I did, because I, there was something that uh, I did get, and it was, and now I'm going blank on what it was. I probably was a, a book I bought. I mean, I just love to read and mm-hmm. uh well i could all right here's one i bought a uh a new wine decanter that um so it's 45 dollars, i think which was a fair bit of money but it's it uh it's one that you put it on top of the bottle mm-hmm. you flip the bottle open and then it, and aerates as it drains into the decanter oh okay and then you can flip it back over and it aerates a second time as it goes back into the bottle so now you've got a nicely aerated wine it's in the original bottle. Oh, that's cool. And uh, so I've, yeah, I've had a lot of fun with that. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Nice. I might have to check that out because yeah. we've launched wine now. And so I yeah. like serving out of the bottle, but then it's like, then you've got to wait and swirl and yeah. 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 Well, it depends on the wine, but um, yeah. definitely most all reds will benefit from some, you know, time out of the bottle. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Very cool. Um, pretend you have a friend coming from out of town. What would the first day look like here? Well, I would say in the old days, you know, Seattle would spend, we'd spend some time down there to typically the market, Mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, depending on their interests, you know, we might go out to Woodenville and a few wineries, but now coming up onto the island, um, it's just, we'll maybe getting them out on the boat to go do some crabbing. Yeah. Um, going down to the parks to walk on the beach, <coughs> excuse me, and uh, um, 
do some hiking. We've uh, we've actually since we've lived here, we've camped at the state park down yeah. on the end. But you know, because our fr- all bunch of friends came up from Bellevue, and mm-hmm. we uh, all camped out down there. It was great. Nice. And there's you know there is a lot of great stuff close close by here. Yeah, it's a great location. So, yeah. Um, but it's it's really just uh, being on the island and having the we have a nice beautiful view and. Um, just love sitting back and enjoying ourselves. Yeah. Nice. All right. Who is an interesting or fascinating person in this community that I should interview next? You know, I thought about this and I didn't, that what I didn't do was look through your whole list of people to know who you have. And okay. I, I talked to your dad this morning. I said, I'm going to say he sh- your son should interview you. So he, I was the first one. I'm like, oh, of course. <laughs> but, uh, I actually do plan on bringing him back for the 100th episode. I don't know if no. he's aware of that yet, but okay. I plan on doing it. <laughs> well, did you talk to Chris Pepper of Ale Spike Brewery? No, not yet. Okay, well, he we carry their beer in, in I think, um, Tap does too, but we carry their beer, one tap, um, from Ale Spike, and, and he has uh, opened a brewery out by the airport. Yeah. And um, it's he's got some great beer. and uh, Yeah. You know, I I've met him and talked to him briefly, but the deeper discussion about why he opened one on Camino Island and yeah. you know what he has to do with the water to make good beer and all that is be pretty interesting. Yeah. So for sure. All right. And lastly, if you could have a message on a billboard right on Camino Island as you're driving on, what would that say? Uh probably something along the lines of "Welcome to Paradise." Please treat it gently. <laughs> um. You know, and, and or I, you know, stronger would be with respect. Yeah. You know, don't litter. You know, don't uh, if you're on a trail, don't go off the trail. Yeah. You know, just uh, enjoy it and then go home. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I was just talking to um, uh, someone from the uh, Camino Island uh, Sheriff Support Foundation. Or I missed up some of those letters, but. Uh, he was talking about the installation of cameras on some of the state park trails and stuff. Oh, interesting. Because they have that. They've got litter, and they're like, well, who's doing all this? Um, so they've, you know, certain trails and stuff have some cameras of some sort, so that way they can try and keep those trails cleaner and stuff like that. Yeah, so. it, it it's terrible that you have to get <clears throat> to that point, but uh, you've probably read about all the increased pressure on our outdoors since the pandemic. Yes. Well, it, it's been happening since <clears throat> we lived here. Um, I, you know, I love the outdoors and I do a lot of hiking and climbing and mm-hmm. I, you drive out to a trailhead, you know, 15 years ago and, and no, no problem getting a parking spot yep. and you've run, you see a few people on the trail, but not that many. Now, if you're not there at six, seven AM, you can't, there's no place to park. And, yeah. and we're loving I love the expression. We're loving our trails to death. I mean, it's just not just the, uh, well, the litter is one thing, but people who stray off the path and cause uh, yep. erosion and the problems go on and on and on. So, yep. um, I, you, you have to respect it. Right. So, yep. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Uh, my pleasure. All right. And Islanders, I will talk to you on the next one.
Well, a big thank you to Brett Alkin for joining me on the podcast today, and thank you for listening. If you haven't already, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps us be found by other islanders like yourself. And for more information on this episode, you can go to CaminoCommons.com slash EP84. That's CaminoCommons.com slash EP84. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.